This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. When we do episodes on this podcast, we typically interview an athlete or an expert in a particular area of expertise and then pull out all the threads of knowledge that you, the listener, are hopefully armed to go away and put some of the most relevant information into use. However, earlier this year, one of our clients, Adam Fiala, wrote this amazing five-part blog, which detailed his entire training journey to climb his first 514, and we thought it'd be great to do a David Goggins-style interview plus narration of Adam's blog, with Adam on hand to answer questions. We ended up recording part one, which got covered or covered the first parts of his blog, but life then happened over the summer and somehow we never got round to recording the final part. Which was a bit of a shame because we had a lot of positive feedback from the podcast and people wanted to hear the conclusion. Well, me and Adam are back for the final part and we're going to process it in the same manner as before, where I'll narrate the blog on behalf of Adam as his English isn't his first language. And we didn't think it was sounded unduly weird for me to read it out for him. He is on hand, though, for the follow up questions at the end of each section that I will be posing. Welcome to round two, Adam. You're obviously a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited about this. So let's get into part two. Okay. just before I start that, um, am I right in saying that after doing your first 514A, 8B plus uh, with RAF. Um, am I right in saying that afterwards you then went on to climb your first 8C as well? Yes, that's true. Um, except before climbing the 8C, I did another winter of training with Lattice. So a whole, another blo- uh, block of training. Uh, there is a little bit of a delay with this blog because it took me so much time to write it. But yeah, I did uh, the AT this spring. Ah, cool. Well, I I know there's a little bit of a, a sort of backstory on this, especially in kind of relation to the nutritional element that we're going to kind of um, get into on part five, uh, which is all the, the second part of this podcast interview. So I won't dive into that one any further right now, um, but we will talk about that a little bit later. Yep, sounds great. Okay, let's get into the narration part of your blog, which is effectively part four, um, but is sort of the first part of today's episode. And what we're going to be doing is looking at the workouts that were in your training program and how much you were training, some of the unexpected implications of the program for social aspects of your training, and then also some of your doubts about the program. Right, let's do it. Winter of 2021, or rather, winter of 2020-21 was a really special one for me. It was the first time that I trained consistently for multiple months in a row, uninterrupted by injuries, life obligations, or anything else. After my first initial summer stint of training, I knew what to expect moving forward. My coach, Raf, got to know me a little better, and the hard part of finding the right training load was already done. 
Below is an example of my training week. But first, a caveat. The program probably won't work for anyone else. The focus and volume of any training program should always be determined with regard to the specific needs of the individual. This is not one of those articles that tell you how to train for 514 or 513 or 512. I'm aware that there is a lot of information online about different training programs and workouts. Many of those sources go into lots of detail, some even recommending specific reps, sets and time under tension. For me personally, I believe that using those types of training resources in the past was not only useless, but even counterproductive in a sense. Why? Imagine that you're going to build a house. You know that you need a foundation so that you study everything about foundations and decide to start by digging a deep hole. You pour the concrete in and then after some time, your foundation is finished. It has rebars, top concrete mixture and precise formwork except that you have no idea what the house will look like. Did you even build the foundation where you needed it? Is it strong enough to support your house? Or maybe it's too strong and you wasted your money. In the end, you might realize that using such quality concrete and spending time with formwork was completely unnecessary for your foundations. You wasted your resources and energy while missing the bigger picture. What you need is an architect. This person will not only make plans for your house, but will also ask you questions about what you expect from your house. And last but not least, they will convince you that some of your ideas are probably wrong. No matter how thoroughly you design a certain part of your project, it is useless unless you see how it fits into the final design. With all this in mind, let's have a look at what my training looked like. Lattice workouts I did and which ones I love slash hated the most. I told my friend I trained with Lattice the whole winter and he asked me, what new things did they make you do? Did you get any new exercises? For some reason, this question made me, made me think of Conor McGregor crawling like a lizard or Adam Ondra attending ballet classes. I started naming workouts that I had in my program Hangboarding, arcing, bouldering, four by fours, stretching, rings, pull-ups, push-ups, core, and so on. The disappointment in the eyes of my friend made it clear that he expected something else. Probably a secret source that Lattice feeds their athletes. I do think that a Lattice source exists, but more on that later. For now, let me reminisce about the workouts that left the most intense impression on me. One of my climbing sessions was focused on anaerobic capacity. For this reason, sorry, for this session, I was supposed to do six in six, which meant six boulders in six minutes. Climb a boulder, rest for the remainder of a minute, and repeat six to seven times for three sets. I mentioned this particular session because it was the one that I had the most intense love-hate relationship with. It was tiring both physically and mentally. You're out of breath, trying to recover for the next boulder, and by the end, you're powering out. There is never really a sense of control or ease because you gradually make the boulders harder as you get better. I think the most challenging and rewarding part of the feeling of exhaustion is after the workout. 
The other workout that felt utterly exhausting was pull-ups. It sounds trivial, and it is. Just pull-ups, nothing else. You might wonder why I needed a lattice program to do pull-ups. Well, it's simple. If you hate doing something, you never make yourself do it. You don't even acknowledge that you should do it. You just subconsciously push that thing into the back of your mind and your brain comes up with a lot of perfectly reasonable excuses. One of them is probably, I don't actually need it. Oh, how I hated pull-ups. Every time I did them, it seemed that all parts of my body lit up with uncomfortable sensations. Either my lower back ache, ached, my, next, my neck got stiff, or I got a bit dizzy. However, it seemed that there was one simple recipe to improve at pull-ups. Just do them regularly, twice a week, every week, without exception. With this strategy, I was able to improve from doing 10 to 16 pull-ups in a row. Still not very impressive, I know. But more importantly, my body got stronger and more resilient in this kind of movement. Pretty much all of the conditioning exercises felt hard to me. On the other hand, bouldering and hangboarding were things that I enjoyed the most. Low volume and high intensity sessions were my thing. However, there was a new challenge in these familiar workouts. Due to the fatigue from all the training, I had to drop the intensity, usually about 5 to 10%. According to my coach, not a big deal for training stimulus. However, there was another aspect of my training that suffered from this. And that was the bouldering with my friends. I don't know a person who doesn't enjoy board sessions with others. There is something magical about this chalky mix of cheering your friends and trying to burn them off at the same time. To keep up with my already strong climbing partners, I would usually show up rested and recovered as much as possible, a luxury that wasn't possible anymore. The problem was that these sessions were too hard I was flailing on the boulders, hardly stringing two moves together. In an ideal world, I'd stand unaffected, an embodiment of a Zen monk quietly repeating the mantra, training is not performing, and I would just climb easier boulders. In the real world, however, I had to acknowledge that it bothered me. This temporary drop in performance became more obvious when climbing with others, and it made me doubt if all this energy and money that I was putting into training was worth it. To ease my doubts and silence my ego, I resorted to training alone. That allowed me to adjust the difficulty of the boulders accordingly, and my sessions were more effective. How much did I actually train? My coach made a few iterations to the training program based on my feedback. In practice, it meant that we would take away a workout or two until I was able to complete a given training period without getting burnt out. Even after that, my, train, my coach tweaked my program often as each block was different and sometimes proved to be too much. I can imagine that it could go the other way around for some people who would perhaps end up adding workouts, but that was not my case. At first, I thought there was not actually a great deal of training in my program. And when I compare it to the things I've read on the internet, it certainly isn't. But that's exactly the thing. Everyone needs to find their starting point and go from there. I tried to fast forward things in the past and it always backfired. After taking some time out to iron out the dosage, my typical training week looked like this. 
Also note that every fourth week, there was a deload week where the amount of work dropped. Two max hang sessions, one bouldering session, one power endurance session, one arcing session, two core strength, six stretching sessions, one forearm conditioning session, three pull strength conditions, two press strength conditions. What was most concerning for me was the amount of climbing sessions. With each on the wall session being under an hour, I didn't spend more than three hours per week on the wall. I asked Lattice about how much workload they would prescribe for an 8B to 8C climber. This is a super complicated question, and it obviously is specific to the athlete. The answer I got was really long and detailed, and I will only publish the conclusion here, even though it is missing some context. However, I believe that it nicely contrasts with my own plan and illustrates a point I want to make. To get specific for male A to B C route climbers, if I were to write a plan for a base phase of non-injured, balanced athlete with a moderate work schedule, I may be looking at a weekly schedule of four days a week of training, including two aero cap sessions of mixed intensity, one aero cap session of lower intensity, 1.5 ANCAP sessions, one and a half quality bouldering sessions, one to two fingerboard sessions, and the additional conditioning on top. As you can see, the amount of training suggested by Lattice is almost one to two times bigger than what I was able to do. And that's exactly it. Everybody is different and has a different training history. It was interesting to read it and compare myself to others, but at the end of the day, I had to stick with what my body can handle anyway. The beauty of personalized training program is that everyone can start somewhere and build up to do more over time. I probably trained less than the average 8B climber, but the program was adequate to my training history. My training program was a little heavier on the conditioning because it was of my weakness. Hence, I had less on the wall time. This split makes complete sense because I always cl just climbed, and never really did any general conditioning. I'm also not naturally strong in this area. Everyone can manage training differently. Training history should be the main determinant of training load. I can easily imagine a 513 or 512 climber is able to get more training done than me. My doubts about the Lattice training program. My doubts were mostly around the fact that I used to climb way more often. The main difference was that in my plan, my training, my climbing sessions were targeted at different energy systems. And as a result, they were more taxing. For example, anaerobic capacity was my nemesis and by far the hardest climbing session for me. Secondly, the sessions effectively eliminated the junk mileage. So even though I might have done less in terms of number of sessions, the quality was much higher. As a side note, I did share my doubts and concerns with Raf, and he did a great job of explaining the reasoning behind the plan. This reassured me and helped me to successfully finish the winter of training. In total, I trained for 16 weeks before I could test the training on rock. You can read how that went in the next episode. Okay, so that's the first part, Adam. And I've got a few questions for you. Okay. 
So first bit that came up, and I really like this bit, uh, is where your friend is really disappointed on you not having some kind of secret source in your training, like some sort of crazy exercises that no one ever sees on the internet and you'd never get a coach giving away on Instagram. Uh, and everything he saw you doing, he was like, I've heard of these before. I know these. Uh, did you find that quite interesting? Yeah. And uh, that's probably the thing, right? There is no uh, magic bullet exercise. And Lati's training program, as well as any other training program, is not about that. It's about organizing training, supporting your coach, and uh, adjusting the workload for you specifically. And also uh, just being honest with you and seeing the obvious things that you can see by yourself. And what did you find before you, when you were doing, uh, and just for anyone listening, the the kind of initial, if you want to know more about Adam's journey in terms of his self-coach journey, go back to part one, the, the original episode that we recorded in this podcast, because he talks about his sort of uh, self-training journey. But for those who haven't listened to that yet, Adam, what do you feel was like the hard thing to get right in terms of that kind of training structure and selection of types of training when you were self-training? Um, Probably the hardest part was... Or the biggest mistake, I would say, was not seeing uh, the training on a macro level. So not really planning in terms of months and seasons, but I was planning my training maybe one week ahead, which is fine if you're experienced. But I think first you need this maybe more strict structure to kind of learn about uh, uh, deload weeks, and uh, cycles and stuff like that uh, which you know I had no idea what it is so basically I would just put in as many climbing as I thought I should do but it wasn't what my body can handle and I just burned out pretty quickly either got sick or injured or yeah both <laughs> yeah and and, and- a kind of important element that that goes along to it that we had that kind of caveat right at the start on was around that deload week that we will always plan into any climbers plan and and those vary quite a bit according to training age and then also kind of chronicle chronological age so i think in your plan you're probably operating on a maybe a three to one work rest cycle exactly and have you maintained that pattern of training long term now are you a little bit more kind of aware of how important that is to the hard work being complemented by something which really allows you to kind of get back on your feet as such and ready for the next harder cycle yeah yeah it's crucial and i i think i pretty quickly understood that uh the 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 training you have prescribed in your week you have to do that not only for one week, but for three weeks in a row, and only then you rest. Uh, and that deload week is is super important for that. Mm. And did you did you learn anything during the the training process of how you stacked sessions together? Was there 
anything which was different over that kind of period where you went oh I'm not going to make those mistakes anymore I find this works really well for me because like it's another question that I get asked a lot about climbers about well should I do this stuff first um is it better Mm -hmm. to put my fingerboarding at the beginning of a session or at the end of a session how important is it to be fresh for anaerobic capacity training for example yeah so in terms of uh, organizing the week itself uh I had a little better idea how to organize it. Um, it's that logic that quality first and quantity last and, and co- conditioning comes as a very last. And um, so what we did with Raf, I think he uh, prescribed some of my weeks, like uh, uh, the exact days and exact exercises. But after some time, I, I would do it myself. And I would have him check it. And then I be- he basically told me that I understand the, the principle. And since then, I basically did it myself. He only prescribed w- what amount of strength and bouldering and aerocab exercises I should do in a week. And then the rest was, uh, was uh, on me, which was easy, easier this way because it allowed me for some flexibility when uh, I had, for example, busier week or some work obligations got in the way so I could move stuff around. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a, a sort of a, a set of rules, essentially, and yeah. a system. And once you know it, then you can, you know, just essentially look after your own training and climbing. And I always argue that actually, if you work with a coach or someone who can help you periodize and structure your overall training program if you really pay attention after a certain amount of time you'll actually know how to do the entire thing and I always say that that's the most satisfying thing ever when you've got a athlete or a client that's worked with you for two three years and they go away and go oh no I can do this job myself now I know exactly what you're doing yeah you know yeah of course and it's awesome yeah, that's what I mentioned last time. After some, you're not only getting the program, you're constantly learning. And uh, I think also your relationship with your coach coach changes over time where you move to a point where you discuss more of a bigger picture stuff, maybe, I imagine now. One thing to add to the week organization, I think it's, it's good to um, realize what workouts do you, are really taxing for you mentally. So for example, for me, there was six and six I mentioned. Um, and for those, I knew that I kind of need to put it in a day where I don't have uh, so much other things going on and I can rest afterwards because it was not only hard physically, but also mentally after I felt super drained. Mm. <laughs> That's uh, definitely true. Yeah, by the way, uh, I I wrote a whole paragraph about doing pull-ups just because I wanted to let people know that they're not alone. And it's it's normal for 514 wannabe climber to struggle super hard with this basic climbing exercise. So uh, whoever uh, is struggling with, with pull-ups, yeah, you're not alone, guys. I hate them as well. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty awful at them actually. Uh, and and the funny thing is, is if I put together a really effective training block that might be three to six months long before I go on a, a trip that ends up going well, 
is I will tend to be pretty flipping good at them or a lot better than I was um, when I go out towards those trips. Um, it's just like, I, from, for me personally, it's an utterly essential, essential basic conditioning exercise, which prepares the back, upper body, shoulders, arms um, in a way that converts well across into the specific exercises right at the end when you're sort of peaking. That's too bad. I didn't want to hear that. I, I, I was hoping I can skip them this season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry um another question i had was uh it was interesting to hear your experience about training with friends and finding that you for you you had to kind of step away from being in that social scene to be able to get the the really high quality work which was very dependent on sort of you know setting the intensity just right um and i, I have to say I, i've been through a similar experience that that work has to be done uh, away from it have you continued in that approach has that sort of maintained or have you found a different workaround or have you just sort of found that as being your truth as such so in that period uh i i, I stick with that uh approach and i a few things i wanted to add i think it's it's good even though it might not be cool i think it's uh, always good to acknowledge at least to yourself your feelings about uh this stuff. Uh, it might sound really trivial, but uh, in the end, uh, it might not do good things for your training. So you might might as well just deal with it, right? Um, and uh, basically, I think the when I started training with Vladis, it was a period of time when I was experimenting, I was trying new thing. No one else around me tried that. And uh, uh, I needed a a long time frame to to test it right um and so uh, you're not you're not sure there's some insecurities uh that you're going through uh and i just i just dealt with it in the easier way possible i just kind of removed that aspect that was kind of making me nervous and and then after i realized that the training works that my approach uh, is the right approach for me. I kind of get more of the self-confidence back to be able to go to the gym and just be okay with myself climbing easier boulders. Um, but for that time being, I just resorted to climbing alone. And uh, I think that was totally fine. No one really cared. <laughs> um and, and nowadays, uh, especially now that I'm uh, focusing more on quality and bouldering again, I'm, I'm climbing, I'm having uh, sessions with my friends as I used to. Uh, by the way, fun fact, burn someone off on the bouldering wall is not a phrase in US apparently. My proof uh, readers told me, they were like, what is that? So I checked with Raf, and apparently it's a, it's uh, it's what you say in uh, UK. So just All right. <laughs> for anyone who's confused, uh, burn someone off means uh, climb better than them, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I learned the same thing in America that they don't say uh, we kind of compliment people in the UK and say someone's a wad, uh, oh. W-A-D. And I think it's entirely derogatory in the US to say that, which I learned recently. I'm what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 
Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all the more impressive that you're you're giving uh, language lessons in your in your second language. Oh, that's just because I have uh, a great friend that did uh, proofreading for me. Yeah, and, and and it came to my attention that apparently not everyone understands this, but I think I have it from uh, Jerry Moffat's book or something. So that's why I used it. Okay. I think it was a it was a big thing at uh, at that time <laughs> with Jerry. <Yeah. laughs> so should we get into the second half of today? Uh, so that's part five of your blog, where we're going to look at your first time on Real Rock after sixteen weeks of training. So that's the bit where people tend to go, "Oh my goodness, right! I put all this work in. This is the the big one." Um, how you had a bit of a process for building your confidence on hard side projects before you went to try your main project, what that first session was like on going back to it, uh, then some thoughts at the end about the sort of hard truth of training, and then also uh, really interesting and very relevant um, to many listening and we, we've done quite a bit of sort of education on this within lattice is about gaining or controlling weight and how this has influenced your performance on rock and that's where also i'll tie in some of your additional thoughts and journey with going to climb uh, 8c after that first 514a as well yeah let's do it okay right let's do this this one is a little longer um but there's some absolute gold in it so i hope you all enjoy your listening in march 2021 i finished a fourth month of training my friend asked me aren't you afraid that all this training won't work of course this question wasn't just pointing out the physical training that i'd done in the past months it became quite obvious to people around me that i had adjusted my life significantly to the demands of this training program even though lack of time wasn't always the issue, the fatigue was. As a result, I had to limit all other activities in my lifestyle, from going out for a beer, which is something I am happy to put aside, to more valued activities like ski touring. I believe that the usual perception of someone making sacrifices is that it will, is that it will in the end, be worth it. However, if you're trying to do something for the first time in your life, you don't know if it works. Justifying all your hard work by getting a reward is a risk that might cause a lot of anxiety in the process. Somehow, I got into the mindset of not setting hopes high on successfully climbing the main project. This was a daunting idea at first, but as I gradually progressed through all the training, it became my reality. I put myself all through this effort and hard work knowing that I might not achieve my end goal. It was something I've never experienced before and it fascinated me. I found that there was something magical and deeply satisfying about it. I had a hard time articulating it to others and I'm still not sure how to describe it. It is probably one of those things that everyone has to try on their own. Spain and local projects. Right after I finished my training in March of 2021, I went to Jaén, a sport climbing area located in Andalucía, Spain. 
the intention of this trip was to have a climbing holiday. In my mind, that means climbing a lot of routes quickly as opposed to spending multiple days on a harder project. This is something I do especially when visiting new areas. In the end, it took me quite some time to realise the key to climbing in this area is finding all of the knee bars. After that, everything becomes a bit easier and I ended up doing quite a few routes in the 8A range. My favourite being Lola Flora's, a 35 metre route with a bit of everything, awesome sections of flowy face climbing into an overhang with a crucial knee bar to clip from, culminating in a exposed finish with the dynamic moves on great holds. The trip to Spain was great for many other things other than climbing, and also for the fact that it was other than it was a holiday. However, I felt like I hadn't put my training to a test. After we came back, the lockdown was still in effect, which resulted in a situation where Slovakia closed its borders and I couldn't go and try my project. Interestingly, it didn't present, prevent us from going to Spain. I decided to try one of the new routes at our sandstone local crag. A friend of mine bolted a new 8B, which I had tried the previous year. This final part of the route has sustained sections on crimps, which conclude by dynamic moves at the lip with a spicy mantle top out. Even though the hard climbing was shorter than my project, it was still a great side test for my project. After three visits, I was able to top out this awesome route and I was ecstatic. I had a direct comparison to how I did on this route last year and it felt great. It seemed that the training had worked. Since then, I have done a few other routes around 8A or 8A plus while I was waiting for Slovakia to open its borders again. I felt really strong on a number of those routes in the 8A range that spring, something I've never experienced before. And yet it didn't help me when I climbed badly or didn't take time to figure out proper build beta. That was a really good reminder that beta, tactics and general ability to climb well is still and always will be superior to physical ability. Back on my project. In the beginning of June, I finally made it to Slovakia. My strategy for the first trip was to take a week off and spend a bit more time on the project as opposed to traditional weekend outings, which can be a bit hectic sometimes. Unfortunately, right before we left, I got sick and caught a cold. I tried my project, but since I was unable to do more than two moves in a row, I utilized this time to re-familiarize myself with all the moves. After that, we went for a two day hike across a beautiful mountain range next to the climbing area. The weather was amazing and so were the views. When we got back, I felt better. It was time to start giving proper red point tries on my project, finally. Firstly, we did a few easier routes and then it was go time. I warmed up on a stationary old fingerboard, which serves both for hanging and cultivation of black mold. When I tied in, I'm not sure what I was thinking about, but I certainly didn't expect what came. The moves still felt quite hard, but I just kept going. I passed my high point from last year and continued through the cruxy crossover move. I also made reachy undercling move to the right and find myself well past the point that I could imagine stringing in one go. After that, I fell and I immediately realized 
that it was a surprise rather than a pump or error that pulled me off the wall. As I was getting ready for another go, I still couldn't decide if I actually had a good chance on the route. I had no idea how the last section felt. My forearms might just switch off, hitting the inevitable death pump at the upper section. However, nothing like that happened. After two minutes of wrestling the overhang and breathing hard, I found myself just below the anchor, once again surprised by myself to the point where I hesitated and fell. This time, however, I realised that I can send the route. The big question mark looming over for many months of effort was gone and I knew that the training had worked. Now all that remained was to play it right and finish the job. Initially, I thought I'll rest and try again the day after, but my girlfriend convinced me to give me another go. It was already late in the afternoon and we were alone at the crag. The air was still and the silence of the moment was occasionally broken by cars passing through the valley below us. I was smiling inside, enjoying calm moments before the storm. That is what I love about climbing, the pressure to execute perfectly, the contrast between stillness and rage and the special atmosphere that accompanies it. I tied in and set off, once again feeling control all the way to the last hard bit below the anchor. I reached to the right-hand gaston, sorted my feet and grabbed the undercling with my left. Now only one thing remained, a blind backstep to the opposing wall, allowing me to suddenly transition from hard climbing in the overhang to a no-hand rest. I grabbed the undercling and for the first time I felt uncertain, panicking at first when I couldn't feel the wall behind me, but finally finding it after a split second. I shakily clipped the anchor, hardly realising that it's over. Was hiring a coach worth it? It would be easy to dismiss this question as an obvious yes, considering I achieved my main goal. But following the lattice training programme came with more benefits than I originally thought. The biggest one for me is that my physical resilience improved. My joints felt healthier. The chronic pain from golfer's elbow has disappeared since. I believe that it's mainly due to the upper body conditioning and putting on more muscle mass. Consistent hangboarding did a great job for my fingers, which are not as tweaky as they used to be. My lower back, that was frequently painful, is doing a lot better now. Not to mention that I feel physically better in activities unrelated to climbing, like ski touring. Another noteworthy advantage of having the training programme written by someone else was that it took my anxiety away. When I self-coached, I was often questioning my decisions and that made it really hard to follow a programme over a long period of time. As a result, I never really stuck to a training programme for more than one or two months. Perhaps it's a personal thing, but handing keys to someone else made it easier to trust the process. Therefore, when doubts did creep in, I simply communicated them to Raf and he explained why we do what we do. Of course, having a coach is not only important because of the expertise. I re received a lot of support from Raf, which I'm especially grateful for, not to mention the conversations and the interactions with other sight climbers never gets boring. Thanks, Raf. The hard truth about the training. When I hear something that sounds too good to be true, 
I immediately get defensive. I don't believe that magic bullets exist, at least not in the world of climbing. I even feel weird about the way I wrote these last few paragraphs that, despite having, despite being written in all honesty, sound like a highly suspicious sales pitch. To put it in context, yes, the benefits I got from the training were great. However, there was hardly anything magical about the way to get there. Almost eight months of consistent training was a lot of hard work. It included missing out on other activities and a lot of compromise. That brings me to the title of this paragraph. The truth is that you have to do all the work and the training plan is nothing without solid adherence and dedication. When I first got the color-coded table with a layout of workouts for up and coming months, I was very excited, like a kid with a new toy. That feeling didn't disappear. But after a few weeks of training, I realized how much work each and every workout in that table represents. Another realization I made was that the training is quite boring. I later read a section in an excellent book that resonated with my experience titled, Be So Good That They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. It describes experiences better than I ever could. I will now quote from the book. Mastery requires practice, but the more you practice something, the more boring and routine it becomes. Once the beginner gains have been made and we learn what to expect, our interest starts to fade. Sometimes it happens even faster than that. All you have to do is hit the gym a few days in a row or publish a couple of blog posts on time and letting one day slip doesn't feel like much. Things are going well. It's easy to rationalize taking a day off because you're in such a good place. The greatest threat to success is not failure, but boredom. We get bored with habits because they stop delighting us. The outcome becomes expected. And as our habits become ordinary, we start derailing our progress to seek novelty. Perhaps this is why we get caught up in a never ending cycle, jumping from one workout to the next, one diet to the next, one business idea to the next. As soon as we experience the slightest dip in motivation, we begin seeking a new strategy, even if the old one was working. As Machiavelli noted, men desire novelty to such an extent that those who are doing well wish for a change as much that, as those who are doing badly, end quote. By the way, I can't recommend this book enough. It has many great ideas and it offers an alternative to the very popular philosophy that tells us to follow your passion. I couldn't agree more with what is written above. One interesting aspect related to climbing is that we seek novelty in the outdoors, an environment that brought us to climbing in the first place. And yet our need to experience adventures might be in direct competition with our desire to improve at climbing. The balance between spending time outdoors and my dedication to training is a puzzle I did not yet solve. I doubt that anyone has a good solution to this. I guess we have to do our best to find out what works for us, knowing that this is not the worst problem to have. Gaining weight to climb better. If you remember in part three, I extensively described my relationship with weight. I had a hard time believing that I can improve in cli at climbing whilst gaining weight at the same time. 
This journey to climb my project was a great experience to prove or disprove this theory. For a number of years, I monitored my body composition on, on an in-body machine. Of course, there is a measurement error, so the following numbers should be viewed with a grain of salt. However, since I use the same machine, the relative differences between the measurements do carry some relevance. I was 78 kilograms when I first tried my project in the fall of 2019. At that time, I felt like I was in really good shape. After that, I gained some weight, mostly muscle as a result of the training period at the beginning of 2020. My weight continued to improve with the lattice training plan, which I followed until May 2021. I put the data from all the measurements into the table and graphs, which you see below. I'm afraid I can't show this in a, in a podcast. Unfortunately, I don't have the measurement from the time I sent my project. So I added the total body weight measured on my personal scale. For the purpose of everyone listening, um, I can describe the body weight was a general increase all the way through the program with a slight dip right at the end, uh, an increase in muscle lean mass and a decrease in fat percentage through to the middle-ish part of the program and then a increase towards the end of the program. Okay, back to Adam's blog. The increase in muscle weight corresponds with the start of the training in the start of 2020, my first attempt to train with the rock climbers training manual that I described in part one. The increase in fat corresponds with the change in diet that I made while training with Lattice at the end of summer 2020. At the time of sending my project, I probably got a tiny bit lighter if the value from the personal scale can be taken into account, but I was still at least five kilograms heavier than in 2019. The conclusion of this experiment is extremely satisfied. My new and heavier body composition with higher muscle mass proved to work well. I also learned the hard way how important it is to support my training with enough food, as described in part three. After I adjusted my diet, I saw a great improvement in my tolerance to training, but also in my general well-being. Most importantly, I silenced the voice in my head telling me that I can't get heavier and climb harder at the same time. One more thing to add. I do think that weight loss has an important place in preparation for hard climbs, but trying to be light all year round is not sustainable, nor does it make sense for training. It seems to me that it's reasonable to shed a kilo or two while being in peak phase when the body doesn't have to cope with so much training. Of course, this means to restrict nutrition a little. What I find quite challenging is transitioning between these two phases, trying to eat quite a lot, even more than is natural to me during the training phase, and then suddenly switching to a mode where I consume a little less. I think it's important to stress the fact that this restriction in eating should be quite mild to assure that the performance is not affected. Looking to lose one or two kilos at the most to give a little boost to performance is more than enough for me. Disclaimer, I am not a nutritionist and I only describe what has worked for me. If you have any history of disordered eating, you should consult a specialist. There are a few great resources that discuss the issue of weight in climbing, not only from the performance side, but also importantly, from the emotional point of view. 
Adam's provided a few links in his blog, uh, which will also be in the blog on our website as well, uh, which go to Light, which is the climbing documentary, um, to Tom Herbert, who you can find as the useful useful coach on Instagram, and also a podcast with Neely Quinn and Alyssa Neal. Okay, back to the blog. Final thoughts and plans for the future. If anyone got this far, thank you. This blog is for anyone, but I hope that there are at least, or there is at least one person that could relate to this story through the love of climbing and the desire to improve. I'm fascinated by how much climbing has done for me. Not only is it a great physical outlet, it is also practice that helps me find balance in life. Climbing is many different things for different people, from living on the road indefinitely and spending as much time in nature as possible, to sweating blood on pieces of plastic and training for the next project. It is for everyone to decide how they want to interact with climbing. But there are people who have, got, who have this interesting aspect, a voice inside their head that is asking the question, how far can I go? For people who, who have this ambition to improve, I wholeheartedly recommend to act on it. Most of us are far from being sponsored athletes making the hardest ascents in the world or winning a competition. Our goals might feel insignificant compared to the world's best, but what isn't? Unlike the popular belief, I think that we don't search for the purpose of life, we create it. Or, like my friend once told me, whilst holding a beer and putting up plywood in his non-profit bouldering gym, you've got to do something in life. I don't think that I could ever go all in with climbing. I wouldn't want to live a dirtbag dream, no offence to those that do. I realised that a traditional lifestyle involving a stable job and owning a property is the way to go for me. However, this lifestyle leaves us with little time and a lot of obligations. To treat climbing as something more than a free time activity is impossible to justify when you, when you look at it through the lens of modern society. The hardest part for me was to realise that actually I don't have to justify any of it. I learned to allocate my time and money to climbing without feeling any guilt or the need to explain myself. Knowing that this little world of training and climbing is not something I need to constantly present to the rest of the world gives me an enormous satisfaction and also freedom to pursue any goal I set my gaze on. So what's next? Immediately after my project, I came back to Slovakia to try one of the neighbouring routes. An obvious line on overhanging a ret, great rock and amazing moves, another gem. It is no coincidence that this route has seen over 10 repeats since its first ascent in 2019. The name of the route is Insomnia and the grade is 8C. After spending several weekends trying the route, I realised that I needed to get a little bit stronger. Another training plan is waiting for me this winter. Well, that concludes that at the perfect spot there, Adam. Yeah, good job on reading that. That was a long one. <laughs> yeah, I um, both times when we've gone and done this podcast where I've kind of done the narration bit, I've gone, oh, I don't do much narration. It's, it's a bit of a skill, actually. And uh, I hopefully people listening didn't get too frustrated with my occasional stumbles and things. 
No, you did a great job. I think it's hard to read it as well. You should get one of those rolling TVs, like the <laughs> presenters and, you know, in the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's quite a lot of nice, uh, there's like some memes and some cool photos and stuff on your blog and they take up quite a big big bit of my screen so when i'm scrolling i'm going oh no there's a photo i need to scroll <laughs> further and find more text no you did a great job thank you by the way that was great oh no problem at all well i've got some some follow-up questions from that particular section and then also kind of leading into the 8c thing and nutrition and weight as well that i I'd definitely like to get into mm-hmm. um so first question is one of the most important concepts that you noted in this section was about setting your expectations so that you could fail on your project if needed. You need to get comfortable with that concept of where that project fitted in terms of that goal and everything. And I think that is a hugely important part of that blog. And I suspect people may just kind of gloss over it, even though you've kind of emphasize how important that realization was for you can you tell me a bit more about that and explain it out yeah i think well the idea is that just because you spend a lot of time doing something and dedicated a lot of effort it doesn't mean that you deserve or you're entitled to reach your goal uh i think that's like the 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 basic idea and then uh when you get rid of that pressure, uh, you know, then everything gets easier. Uh, you, you know that you just have to do your best and that's everything you can do. And then you can really control the outcome. So uh, with this, once I realized that everything got a little bit easier, but the, the hardest part was to communicate it to others because that idea of deserving or having to reach your goal just because you uh, you put so much effort in it uh, was something I ran into often when talking to people. So that was something I kind of had to deal within myself first and then everything felt way easier after. Mm. Oh, and did you find that you you went through that by kind of checking in on that thought process and where it sat with you till eventually you got it into a better position or was it through discussing it with, you know, sort of external parties with friends and family and things. How did that kind of journey process actually look in terms of the sort of practical? What did well, you do? well, for me, that's something I kind of discussed with myself. Uh, I often check in with myself and uh, try try to realize what are the things that are causing anxiety. So if it's a if it's a project at work or something that makes me uh, worried, I then I realize it and I have to communicate it to my boss, for example. And it's 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 exactly the same thing with this, right? So uh, this is the process that I do all the time, maybe unconsciously. I only actually said it out loud now that you asked me, but I just hate to be anxious about something. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I 
I mean, I, I remember reading that the first time when we were going through this uh, blog and putting it together. Um, and I was so pleased when I read that because it's a process that, or a, a, a position of sort of, I suppose, mental state that I would encourage lots of people to try and get into. Uh, I think it's a very healthy one. Um, mm -hmm. And it can be hugely problematic for pretty much any climber at any stage of their life where they have a difficult relationship with expectations and they can't move it through the entire sort of spectrum of very, very high expectations mm -hmm. to very, very low expectations. And then the sort of uncontrollable life factors that come in and out of that, whether it's performance on the route or just general life. Yeah. I think maybe you noticed that many times in my blog, I, I mentioned how, what other people told me, uh, and, uh, I think that's because I had some doubts and insecurities about all this effort I'm putting into the training. And that's because I did it the, for the first time in my life. I changed something I was doing for maybe 10 years. And then suddenly I decided to undergo this, you, to put so much time and so much effort into this training and do something that no one else from uh, my friends did. And I think uh, after that, after I saw success, I built enough self-confidence that now it's way easier to go through that again. Uh, but to tie that back to uh, training with Lattice, uh, I think when you do something like this for the first time, it's the hardest. So it's really nice to have the support and someone to talk to. And that was rough for me, right? I, uh, uh, I basically was really honest with him and uh, we didn't only discuss the nuts and bolts of training, but also uh, how I felt and all the uh, emotions that went with it uh, because it was a long time before I could test the training on the real rock. It was probably like eight months of effort. Yes, that's a decent amount of time and it, it was a it was a funny couple of years all those lockdown years and uh not being able to get out and all sorts of weird stuff yeah but you know in a way it's good because for me i don't think that less time would work so uh i think yeah i think i needed that mm. and kind of uh going on that same thread or concept of expectation it must have been really exciting and challenging at the same time that when you went on that project for the first session and you went oh my goodness this is going very well very quickly did that suddenly put that whole expectations thing into a different place for you or were you actually did you find you're quite well set up already because you spent a lot of time thinking about expectations so it didn't you know overly panic or stress you well it totally surprised me that the training worked so well because what i expected was to be in a good shape but maybe having to spend a uh, few weekends uh or like a lot of sessions on the route before i get used to it and then maybe having have a good shot to send it but this was kind of perfect scenario, right? I came, I, I, I worked 
the moves for two days while I was a little bit sick. And then I got back to the route and I could, if I wasn't surprised, I could send it the first real go of that season. That's how well the plan worked for me. Uh, I'm aware that it's not always like that. It was certainly not the case with the HC, but uh, with this, uh, it worked perfectly. Yeah, anyone listening, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't always work out this way. Adam, don't don't make anyone well, think that it goes so easy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it was. It happened for the first time in my life, and there was so much training behind yeah. all that. Uh, yeah. No, no, it's 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 cool to see, and I think also a a useful thing to to note for people listening is that you you probably would have noticed especially if you have taken the time to listen to or, or read all four, five parts of adam adam's blog is that he's very self-aware and intentional about his journey and his process and this is something that i typically see as being really good with athletes that are able to progress year on year because essentially it tells you that they're good at completing constant feedback loops they do something, they take an action, they reflect on it, then they see where it got them to, they see the pros, cons, things they learned, and then they feed those back into the system and they keep doing that. And you do that year after year, decade after decade, and it ends up re- resulting in really good performance. Um, and you can apply, fortunately, the same thing across many parts of life, um, you know, all the way down to things like basically like education stuff like that so it's uh i think it's an important element to why um, adam has been successful with his climbing um let's talk about weight and nutrition and the moderation of of weight and i suppose the bit to kind of reference it would be your plan or strategy for the 8c that you you did subsequently mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, basically, I'll just briefly mention uh, the training for 8C. I, I uh, hired Lattice again for winter and uh, did a four-month blog. And uh, to kind of react to how perfectly sending of the 8B plus project went, this was a completely different story. The training was a little bit of disaster. I started too late. I got sick. I overtrained a bit. Uh, and then when I got on the project, I didn't feel that great. But it's a it's a good example of of the fact that things doesn't always need to go according to the plan, and they can work out if there is a, a lot of work behind all that. Um, so basically, uh, to support my training for insomnia, this HC, I decided to cut off a little bit of weight. To put it into the context, the, the, the weight gain I had training with Lattice, the five kilos from 78 to 83, that, that state, like I'll never get lighter than that and I don't even want to. But on top of that, I would gain another uh, few kgs just because I ate a lot during the training. Uh, uh, and I think also your body tends to, uh, uh, contain a little bit more of water. And so 
I decided to cut maybe two to three kilos to get uh, back to 83 because I would even get to 87 kilos during my training. And uh, I basically decided to uh, cut carbs and uh, maintain enough protein in my diet to keep the muscle mass. And uh, it worked really well. I did my me measurements and I basically uh, lost the desired three kilos. Uh, <laughs> so per sounds perfect, right? But <laughs> another lesson was that uh, because it worked so well, suddenly I thought, why not just keep going, right? Mm. Uh, which is super, super dangerous because at the same time I was getting back with my project, I felt pretty good. I had a bigger days with the approach and the attempts. Uh, and uh, it got to the point where I felt really exhausted and I had trouble focusing at work. Like I couldn't concentrate, right? So I had to kind of realize that I don't need to cut any more weight. Uh, it, this, it's enough. And I can just, uh, I can just tr transition into uh, eating normally, which I did. And it was a quick fix. I suddenly felt way better. Uh, uh, when I uh, reintroduced carbs into my diet in a normal amount and I, I sent the route. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's the takeaway. Uh, and that's my strategy now. Uh, cutting weight, yes, but very limited amount of time uh, during the year. Once you're done with all the hard and heavy training, and uh stop stop uh at the right time and uh make sure you have enough energy for uh your days out mm. yeah it, it's it, it definitely sounded like you almost got into yeah bad habits from the past there again yeah and yes yeah. I, I think it's important for anyone to realize that it's not something you suddenly become immune to. If you if you manage to sort things out and you get into a better, better track and you have historically been in some tough spots with it, then it, it's, it's, a, it's a risk point and you, you need to have some mechanisms ideally in place to keep you in check if you're going to start um, going down that route because uh, I think the human mind doesn't, it's not the sort of binary thing that suddenly just flips out of a, a, a set of behaviours. If you set the scene again right, or I suppose the word might be wrong, um, then you can go go back to, to old habits. And yeah, it, it's worthwhile having things in place for that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not like you figure it out and then you have it figured out. You have to constantly remind yourself uh, to do uh, what you planned. And uh, yeah, uh, luckily, not, I didn't take it too far. It was, uh, yeah, it was just uh, like a few days of feeling really bad. And that kind of uh, reminded me that uh, I need to fix it immediately. Mm. 
well you're looking healthy now and uh and very happy which is which is which is great to see and i know you've got some some further life changes ahead of you uh beyond the 8c i think you're you're about to become a parent at some point aren't you uh yeah uh next year in january we're expecting a baby we're gonna uh, have a house built so there will be it'll be a busy period but my uh climbing plans has a form of uh, a built-in uh bouldering wall in my house so that's my strategy uh how to deal with busy work and parenting life uh hopefully i can i can team up with you guys again and, and you'll give me some advice uh in terms of uh managing parenting and climbing i can, I can definitely give you dad advice <laughs> <laughs> in fact you, you should go and listen to oh there was a podcast episode that me and john prop yeah. recorded that was i can't remember we called it the, the dad episode or something like that and no uh, no no i listened to it that was awesome I, I i really loved at one point where you were discussing all the details and then john was like but it's hard right <laughs> it's just a hard work <laughs> Yeah, I think that summed it up pretty nicely. Maybe you should do uh, another program, uh, you know, like uh, dad uh, training, dad and mom training program. <laughs> I know. I, I was joking about the other day, going, "Oh, we should we should do dad bods," um, <laughs> because I always see this on the front of cover of magazines in the supermarket. This whole thing about dad bods and mum bods and it kind of makes me cringe and I can't stand it um and it sort of it takes me off to these places where I think oh I don't want Lattice to ever become like that I want us to kind of <laughs> remain pretty committed to the core of what we do um but oh. anyway yeah Adam thanks so much for joining me today for this episode and for anyone who enjoyed that don't forget there is part one that we have on this podcast that Adam and I recorded some time ago and there is also the full written blog uh in five parts which adam has we have links to that in the original episode and then i'll also put them in the show notes this one and then we have a condensed down blog in a two-parter which i think we have on our website as well so ultimate unlimited resources point always point to adam fiala so there is no excuse to find out what you need to do for your first 514 or 514B even. Thanks very much, Adam. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Tom. This was great fun. <laughs>